Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter, Built by Scott, and Instagram at King O'Kane, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. If you're in human performance today, you recognize that the industry has changed. Gone are the days of highly focused specialists who live in their isolated lanes, working without the understanding of the whole human being. The world of human performance is about integration today. It's about recognizing what your client needs to do to perform at their highest potential, discovering the parts of the puzzle of performance that need work, while keeping this person moving, training, performing, and succeeding seamlessly. Reconditioning is an operating system for this new world of human performance. The practice honors the role of each specialization and helps define the most powerful and tactical use of interventions that will make a difference. You don't take your car to the garage only when it's broken. You schedule for regular maintenance so that it keeps running smoothly when you need it. The human body is no different and reconditioning professionals are those best prepared to keep the human body running. Check out our courses at ReconditioningHQ.com today. Follow our robust educational programming and become the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. It's been four years that Leave Your Mark has been up and running. And during these four years, uh, we've had a fantastic podcast sponsor in Matrix Fitness. I have to thank Greg Lawler for his commitment to this podcast and his commitment and his team's commitment to what we're trying to do is helping you in the community see and listen to some of the best in the business of human performance. And to talk about the best in the business, well, right back at Matrix Fitness, they are the best in the business at what they do, and they serve uh, the continuum of human performance from the day-to-day person who is looking just to stay fit and, uh, and to aspire to be healthy to the person who wants to be out uh, performing at their best in an athletic endeavor. They have all the equipment that spans that continuum. They're ready to help you, the practitioner, or you, the person who wants to build your at-home facility or a facility or an institutional facility to have success with your clients or with yourself. So I encourage you to take a look at their products. Head over to teamupwithmatrix.ca today and check out what they're doing. They have outstanding equipment and outstanding customer service. So once again, thank you to Matrix for supporting Leave Your Mark and take some time today to check them out. Wow, what's going on at ReconditioningHQ.com these days is insane. Uh, you can find the entire R1 Foundations course online and available to digest at your leisure. The R2 Designs course is right there as well, fully loaded. R3 Collab is a combination of online material all about the neurological system and then a live laboratory where we dive deep on everything reconditioning. These three courses walk you through the process of reconditioning all the information and what we've done now is we've attached to all of this a mastermind community and when you're in the mastermind community it's 20 bucks a month uh, and you have access to weekly meetings that we're going to be doing on case studies 
all kinds of gem material from things that we've done, uh, guest presenters, guest interviews. We have Matt Jordan coming up in a few weeks, Nick Ward from Altus coming in a few weeks as well. So we've got some outstanding people coming as guests in the future. We are basically in that mastermind combining uh, revolving eight-week labs for each of those courses. So they're cycling through. We're going to do eight weeks and take a break to another eight weeks. So if you're in R1 and you want to come in and learn while you're in the mastermind, we have meetings once a week for an hour to go through the material. So it keeps you accountable, allows you to touch base with what you've learned, ask your questions. It really allows you to dive deep on all the information. On top of that, because the world is starting to open up a little bit, we are going to have our first live lab in Montreal, May 14th, 15th for R1 Foundations. And effectively, what we're going to do is when you purchase a course, you have all that material online. You have access to the mastermind and the community material and the community learning. And then you can come with to this meeting on the weekend for two days and just dive deep on how to play with all the information. And so it's not a, a, a teaching lab as much as it is a learning lab, a trying lab, a context lab. And that's what we've got uh, big time for everybody these days. And then on top of that, the International Hockey Performance Summit is pivoted to virtual June 10 to 12. All the powerful content, we have kept it all in there. We've revised the curriculum. You can go online, take a look at it. The SCAF Summit pre-summit is going to be there too. So three days of incredible information is going to be available to you. If you have an interest in hockey performance or foundationally the people People who are speaking at this thing are the top of the world at what they do. So you're going to take away whether it's hockey related or just training and performance related. It's there for you. So come and join us uh, virtually. It's all there for the taking. And then on top of that, if you are interested in ski performance training and you want to learn to train to train uh, or train to compete with your athletes that you're working with off snow, I am doing a ski program, a workshop on April 23rd, 24th in Mont-Tremblant, Quebec. It is also virtual as well. So it's live and virtual. It's a hybrid event. You can jump on that and that's available right now. Going to be dropping the hammer on that April 23rd, 24th. So uh, look forward to having you with us in anything we're doing reconditioning today. Head over to reconditioninghq.com to check out all our offerings. As an avid listener of the Leave Your Mark podcast, I'm sure you recognize the process that I take our guests through in learning about their lives and understanding what it is taken for them to become the professionals and the successes that they've had in their lives and effectively there's a lot of learning that we go through and everybody that I talk to talks about mentorship and influential people in their lives and the podcast has always been my offering to the community at large uh, for you to see and learn from the insights of others. But now what I'm doing is uh, at the beginning of May I am launching the Leave Your Mark Life Lab, and this is going to be my stewardship process for helping you become the professional you want to be through mentorship, through reflection, through directed conversation, giving you skills, providing accountability, 
and talking about your progress and inside a group of people who are all trying to do the same thing, providing you with a, a lens uh, of, of reflection on yourself and the things that you want to accomplish and recognize that you need to put as much into yourself as you do into others. And this industry is crazy when it comes to us taking care of everybody else but not taking care of ourselves. So I want to change that. That's what the LYM Life Lab is all about. I encourage you to head over to the Leave Your Mark website, which is lymlab.com. Check out what we're offering in the LYM Life Lab section. You can also download two free videos that I created that are a starter kit to this process and looking at creating change in your life. And I would be remiss if I didn't say, hey, grab yourself a hat while you're there because Leave Your Mark hats are sick lids if I do say so myself. And lastly, I want to uh, invite you to check out the latest episodes and please take the time to go over and leave a comment, leave a rating on your favorite streaming service because it helps us get out to more people. So without further ado, let's get on to the podcast. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Curtis Bell. Curtis is the Director of Sport Performance for the Pittsburgh Penguins in the National Hockey League. Curtis began his career in hockey with the Flint Generals of the Colonial Hockey League and then went on to work for the Lightning, Devils and Penguins until 2008. He took a sabbatical of sorts from the league working in an ortho clinic and then for the Edge School in Calgary, Alberta. In 2012, he returned to the NHL with the Penguins and has been there ever since winning two Stanley Cups in the process. He's an athletic trainer, has a master's in clinical nutrition, and all of this after starting by dropping out of high school and joining the U.S. Navy. I'm happy to have him with me today. Welcome, Curtis. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks uh, for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure and uh, probably more than due, actually. So, yeah, you you are, as many athletic trainers are, quietly go about your business in the background of the of the industry, and it's nice to learn the stories of uh, guys like yourself. And I want to start with this. Uh, you, you put it in your thing, so I'm going to jab it right away. You drop out of high school. Why? What happens, and, uh, and what influences that? Uh, interesting situation. Um, so my parents uh, were divorced when I was age nine. And after that, my mother remarried and uh, married uh, a man who had three children of his own. Uh, One was one year younger than me. One was the exact same age and one was a year older. Uh, So the mixing of those families uh, was pretty difficult on me because I think I was 12, 13 years uh, of age when we all moved in together. Hmm. Uh, So it was a difficult time for me. Uh, And I guess just after a couple of years of trying to assimilate in that new uh, nuclear family, it just got uh, so that I I didn't want to be there anymore. Hmm. Uh, And my father was living in Los Angeles uh, this family that I uh, kind of uh, was thrown into was living in Arizona, uh, and I was going to high school in Arizona, Tempe, Arizona at the time, and decided that I'm going to move back to uh, Los Angeles, where my father was, uh, and uh, live with him for a while. Uh, and strangely enough, 
uh, he never forced me or told me that I had to go back to high school. So as a kid, uh, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old, I think I was 17 at the time. I'm like, hey, this is awesome. Uh, I'm not going to go back to high school. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I did not go back to high school, did not enroll in high school when I came to Los Angeles and just started working, uh, started doing odd jobs, uh, trying to kind of find my niche, uh, basically, mm -hmm. what I should be doing, uh, what was the right thing for me to do. And I just started working odd jobs. I, I worked at Dodger Stadium selling Cokes throughout the stands. Um, I worked at uh, grocery stores. I worked at uh, all sorts of things. Uh, so it wasn't as if I did nothing. I wasn't like a total loser dropout. I was actually just trying to find myself. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, step parent kind of situation kind of threw me into that uh situation where I needed to find who I was, what I needed to do, and where I should go. Mm -hmm. And uh, kind of never really found it through any of those odd jobs. Uh, and after several years, uh, I figured, you know, maybe the military would be a good option for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was at that time that I thought uh, I'd become a pilot. I'd be a, a good pilot. Uh, so I joined the Navy, thought I'd become a pilot, go to uh, pilot school. And uh, about my first week into the Navy, uh, through the physical exams and everything, found out that my vision was no longer 2020. <laughs> and in order to be a pilot in the Navy, you have to have uncorrected vision of 2020. So you can't wear glasses, you can't have contacts. It has to be 2020. Uh, so my dream of becoming a pilot was gone as well. So uh, I decided, well, what is the longest schooling that the Navy has that would keep me in California? And that was in going to be in San Diego, and it was the sonar technician program. Uh, so the schooling was quite extensive, uh, but I would be in San Diego, so that was close to home, uh, and I could stay uh, in California and visit uh, Los Angeles, which is only about a two, two and a half hour drive every so often. Uh, so I decided to do that and kind of became a sonar technician, um, kind of just out of <laughs> luck, I guess, or bad luck, whichever way you put it. Um, so that's how I got into the Navy as I wanted to be a pilot, couldn't do it. So then took the uh, longest route of schooling that was available in San Diego, and that was sonar technician. Hmm. Um, so then you, you actually served as a sonar technician for yes, a period of time? Yes, yeah, I was in the Navy, stationed in San Diego, uh, got to see a lot of great things, uh, but uh, also found out that electronics or electrician stuff really wasn't what I wanted to do either. Uh, so after my time in the Navy, I quickly left and, uh, strangely enough, through a friend of mine who was going back to school at, uh, Cal State Dominguez Hills, which is in Carson, California, uh, he told me about a program there that was called athletic training. Hmm. And, uh, he said, you know, you might be interested in doing this because I had been a sports fan, uh, my entire life. I had played sports. Um, baseball was my main sport, 
and I played that all the way up into junior college before I went to the Navy. Um, he said, you know, athletic training might be something that you'd really be interested in. It combines sports as well as the human body. Um, and he thought that would be great for me. So I quickly enrolled in that program. And that's kind of where my real education and uh, finding my niche really came about was uh, going back to school after the Navy and joining this athletic training program at Cal State Dominguez Hill. Well, before we get into that deep, um, going back to the Navy piece for a second, what were a few of the things that that experience shaped in you as a person beyond the Navy? How, how, how do you look upon that now as to the qualities that maybe it gifted you for your success in your work that you do now? Well, I think what the Navy does in the military overall is really makes you disciplined. Uh, so from the very first day you're in there, um, you know, it is all about uh, accountability and discipline. Um, so I think the Navy and the military in general really helped me become a disciplined, organized, focused individual. And it really also taught me, and I think this kind of goes into my pro sports experience, is that it really keeps you on an even keel. You never want to get too excited. You never want to get too down about what's happening. You always want to kind of keep an even keel uh, because this roller coaster ride, if you decide to go on that, can be really stressful uh, mm. where everything becomes uh, really exciting or really really sad because you've just lost a game or something. So I think the Navy helped me uh, prepare for the pro sports world where, you know, you lose two games in a row and guys are, you know, want to jump off the bridge. Uh, and then you win two games in a row when they're already uh, making the Stanley cup rings for you. Uh, and I think that's, you know, partly the media and the fans, but, I think the military really helped me to be a more even keel uh, person, but really the discipline, uh, the uh, giving of yourself too. I think the military really teaches you that it's not about you. It's about that fellow next to you mm. and, and, and really trying to do all you can for that fellow next to you um, it is really important. I think that it's interesting, the sonar piece, because it, it's kind of an interesting um, career space that I am kind of curious about after watching a few movies and seeing some people who are doing it. Um, because and it may not have happened to you, depending on, you know, the theaters of space that you were in in your time. But this idea that you can concentrate on something that's coming that might be killing you or destroying you or your teammates. Uh, but you have, you have to remain focused on, you know, analyzing this thing rather than reacting to it in some sense. Talk about, like, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but I find that kind of intriguing about that role. Yeah. So I'm a sonar technician in the Navy on a fast frigate. Mm. So if you know anything about a battle group, uh, a fast frigate is the, is the smallest, quickest, um, kind of fastest ship in the battle group. And what the fast frigate does is really search for torpedoes and basically intercepts them so mm. they don't hit 
the battleships or the aircraft carriers. Uh, so those are the ships that you really want to preserve. The other ships uh, in the battle group are kind of to protect those ships. Obviously, mm. the battleship and the carrier have their own um, protection devices on there. Uh, but in the world of torpedoes and sonar, the fast frigate is kind of the one that really intercepts any of those torpedoes that may be heading for those larger ships. Hmm. So when I was in the Navy, we had a real good idea of the frequencies of Russian subs. So we knew when a Russian sub actually flushed the toilet, for example, <laughs> because we could pick it up on frequency wow. And we had an idea exactly which class of sub it was, where it was, where it was going, where it was coming from. And then uh, back in the 80s, mid-80s, there was this spy ring, this family of Navy sonar technicians that was selling secrets to the Russians. Also, for example, the, the subs have propellers uh, on them. And we could pick up how fast they were going based on the cavitation and the frequency of that cavitation as it comes through the water. Hmm. Um, so this spy ring of U.S. Navy sonar technicians that was selling secrets to the Russians, um, all of a sudden, in a very short period of time, the Russians started making their own subs that became so quiet that we could then not pick up a lot of this stuff that we were easily able to pick up before. Wow. Um, so, uh, and some of their nuclear subs really became so quiet that we had real difficulty. So in the time that I was in there, there was this whole process of trying to discover how we could determine where these Russian subs were and what kind of subs they were. Uh, and it became really difficult because of these this family that was selling these secrets to the Russians. Wow. Uh, but I think when, because I was never in a real life wartime situation, the thought of, you know, intercepting a torpedo outside of a, a simulation never really occurred mm -hmm. to me that I could be on a ship that would have to sacrifice itself and its men in order to uh, protect other uh, people. Uh, it never really hit me, although it, in the back of your mind, you always know that that's a possibility, hmm. uh, which I think is one of the greatest uh, kind of human, uh, human psychology is to know that people are volunteering hmm. to join the military, knowing that they have the potential of being uh, killed in action. Uh, and, and just that knowledge uh, of people that are willing to do that, I think doesn't get enough credit. Uh, and, and just, it, it's amazing that there are people who will volunteer to do that to save other people. Mm -hmm. But that, that's a whole nother, uh, a whole nother discussion. But um, I mean, I never really was faced with that directly, although you know it's in the back of your mind. Mm -hmm. No, it's a, it's an interesting um, 
space to have come from like uh, i talked to uh, jay millette a few months ago um with the knights and and sort of similar conversation about his military background and what he had done and i think he went over and served in uh, in iraq for a bit and things so you know it, it it's it serves you in many ways and it's kind of cool to hear how it served you so you talked about going into uh, athletic training school um what do you what do you fall in love with when you're there doing it or or do you like what what is what is what catches you at the end of the day i think because i was always a sports fan the the human body and the physiology and the biomechanics are what really uh kind of springboarded me into the whole athletic uh realm of it um and just knowing how the physiology plays such an important role in athletics uh, really became uh, more of a focus. And then that physiology really turned more into the nutrition. I'm really uh, much more interested and focused on the nutrition side of things rather than the biomechanical side uh, of things. So that became a real important uh, aspect. Um, and, and that didn't come till later. The, f- the first part of athletic training is basically just uh, you know, doing your anatomy and your physiology stuff and trying to know, you know, the difference between the tibia and the fibula and uh, all of those things. Um, so the nutrition side was really always interested, but it never came up until a, a bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I had a great, a real great uh, head athletic trainer who was the instructor and the head of the program at Cal State Dominguez Hills. Uh, Wilma Bingham was her name, but uh, she was really great and just instilled this kind of excitement about learning, about learning about the body and the physiology and how everybody is different and how you can't look at one injury or one particular um, malady as being the same for every single person. There's nuances to everything, and uh, you have to be able to look at that person in a different way all the time than if you were looking at somebody else. Uh, So even though they both have an ankle sprain, you know, that ankle sprain may be completely different and completely um, treated in a different way than uh, uh, an ankle sprain on another person. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although it may be similar, you know, there still are nuances both to that person's physiology as well as to that person's psychology that you really have to understand. And, and she made that uh, important and, and that kind of uh, excited me as well. So what, what sports did you, did you work with uh, at university? Uh, when I first was at Cal State Dominguez Hills, they were a division two school. So uh, which they didn't have football. Uh, all they had was basketball, baseball, and soccer on the men's side. And at the time I was going through school, um, contact sport wasn't a prerequisite to being uh, certified as an athletic trainer. Uh, after my first year or so, that did become a consideration. Uh, or excuse me. It was always a consideration, but soccer wasn't considered a contact sport at the time. So I had to find another school to go to to uh, get that prerequisite of being involved with a contact sport in order to get the certification as an athletic trainer. Mm. So uh, I started looking around at other schools to transfer to that had football. Uh, 
And obviously in Los Angeles, there's there's a couple of big, nice choices. <laughs> and it was UCLA. UCLA was the first choice because it's a state school and it was cheaper. And it was, uh, it, it, it basically was cheaper. And I could get into that school uh, and, and afford it. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't have the athletic training kind of program that I was looking for. Uh, so then the second choice was USC. USC was a, is a private school, uh, very expensive, but they were actually looking for student athletic trainers to uh, join a program. And it was more uh, an exercise science-based program, uh, but you would be able to internship with all of the different teams uh, at the school. Uh, so I decided to transfer to USC. I got into USC, uh, transferred there, got some financial aid, but uh, it still was pretty expensive uh, to go there. Um, but uh, decided to make that leap because I thought it was important. Uh, and uh, it has paid me back uh, in so many ways, just the ability to work with the level of athlete mm. that was at USC uh, and, and I could give you names of guys that I worked with and treated, you know, who've gone on to NFL careers, MLB careers, NBA, Olympic gold medalists. Uh, it was really a special uh, place to be, still is a special place to be. Uh, and I was so thankful to have been able to get there. Uh, and the athletic trainers that were there at the time, just uh, really great people. Uh, so I transferred to USC and... Uh, you know, I had some really great experiences there, and it taught me a lot. It was an internship program, unlike today, where it is a degree program. It was not a degree program back then. You had to do so many hours in the training room, uh, but got a degree in kinesiology, uh, and through the uh, hours in the internship, uh, got my certification uh, in athletic training from that. Who was the big stud football player at USC when you were there? Uh, Junior Seau was uh, the big player at the time, Um, and uh, he was a great guy. Uh, I'll never forget the one time he he got his finger, making a tackle, got his finger caught in a player's jersey. These were mesh jerseys. They were practice, practice mesh jerseys. Got his finger caught, broke his finger, and the finger broke in uh, the end of his finger and it popped the nail off of the finger and uh, he is just telling us that just cut the finger off wrap it up i'm going to go back out on the field uh he doesn't want to come out this is practice he doesn't want to come out his Mm. fingers mangled uh and he doesn't want to come off the field uh and that's just uh you know the kind of guy he was um and unfortunately that uh, we lost him way too early um, but uh, he was a great guy, probably the biggest name at that time. Uh, Todd Marinovich was a pretty big name, too, but for, for other reasons. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was a great experience uh, to be at USC at that time. Hmm. Well, it's an interesting pivot. Um, you know, we'll go in different directions, but uh, might as well, while we're talking about him, like, obviously he passes away from and in some pretty difficult circumstances. As an athletic trainer, what, having known him, like, what did you, how did you, how did that make you feel at the, at the point at which you discovered that about his life and stuff? Yeah, I was 
pretty shocked and, and saddened uh, because I knew him when he was a young, a young man just trying to make his way. Uh, he wasn't really a starter. When I first got to USC, he wasn't a starter, and he became a starter uh, later uh, on his junior, senior year at USC. But uh, just really saddened because I knew the, the big-hearted, kind guy he was off of mm -hmm. the football field. Uh, and this whole concussion, uh, head trauma thing really started to come into focus more uh, because you finally are dealing with someone or had dealt with someone who has now succumbed mm -hmm. to some of these things that you hear about uh, with concussion. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think now we, at least I focus on the whole head injury um, mild traumatic brain injury uh, a bit different now uh, and take it quite a bit more serious than I did prior. Uh, although we did always have it in the back of our mind that this could uh, happen, just to have it hit you uh, like that uh, really brings it into focus. So um, just trying to be as diligent as possible with anybody who has complaints or anything that we see. I think we're, uh, as the Pittsburgh Penguins, we're really diligent. Uh, we've got spotters, we've got uh, doctors. Anytime somebody says or hears something, you know, we're right on top of it as far as trying to uh, evaluate it further and, and really get ahead of anything. Uh, as you know, being in pro sports, uh, as prepared as you are, uh, there are still things that happen. Uh, it's a contact sport. It's a tough game. And, uh, you know, we can't prevent everything, although we wish we could. Um, you know, and for guys that come to us from other teams or from the junior ranks, you know, it's difficult to, uh, to know actually how many concussions they've had. Uh, a lot of those things at those lower levels uh, – aren't reported uh, because they don't have athletic trainers on staff full time. Um, but, you know, we try now to be as diligent as possible. And it just really hit, hit home for me that this guy who had such vibrant passion for football as well as life uh, finally decided that that passion was no longer there. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that hurt uh, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to circle back and do a couple of those thematics later, but um, you, how do you end up getting your first job with the generals? Uh, how does that come about for you? So after college, uh, I'm still in Los Angeles, uh, but there are some issues with uh, riots going on. <laughs> so I'm in, in Los Angeles in 1992. I'm, I'm just about to graduate uh, and all of a sudden the Rodney King situation happens wow. and, uh, I'm looking at Los Angeles as, is this the place I still want to be a part of? Mm. Uh, and the Rodney King, uh, you know, these riots are happening. I, I think I stayed up for 48 straight hours, just watching television, just mesmerized by my city. And, and I take it personally, my city burning down. 
Uh, like these are the streets that I would drive through or ride my bike through or take the bus through to get to USC. Wow. Uh, and everything is burning down. It seemed to me everything was burning down. Mm-hmm. And people are taking up arms and uh, shop owners are shooting back at people. And it was really uh, another time of reflection like what is going on here? Uh, is this a place I wanted to be? And uh, after I graduated, I worked at a physical therapy clinic uh, for about two months. And I said, I got to get out of Los Angeles. This is not the place I want to be anymore. Uh, this physical therapy clinic was opened by a couple of the trainers at USC, as well as Ronnie Barnes, who is the head athletic trainer with the New York Giants football team, they opened a physical therapy clinic. Ronnie had a couple of other clinics in New York, New Jersey, and they decided to uh, open one in in, uh, Los Angeles. So I worked there for a period of a few months and decided, you know, I've got to get away from Los Angeles. So uh, moved to Florida. And now I moved to Florida with no job. I've got a a brother-in-law who has a house that he says, you know, I'm willing to sell you my house. Uh, I'm looking for someone uh, to buy it. I'm looking to get rid of it. He's in the Tampa area. He says, uh, why don't you come on out, take a look at it. So I've got all my stuff in Los Angeles. I just drive to Tampa. All my stuff's back in L.A. I live in this house. I have no job. Uh, I just graduated from school. Los Angeles is burning down. Uh, (laughs) I'm going, oh my goodness, what am I doing? Uh, And uh, I start another journey in my life trying to, again, figure out what to do. Uh, So I'm living in this house. It's got no furniture. I'm sleeping on the floor. Uh, And that went on for about, I want to say, two, three months. Finally, I got my furniture, moved it out. And I found a job. I'm working at an orthopedic clinic for a doctor that just uh, opened a practice in the area. And he's looking to expand his practice. Uh, So we kind of hit it off. And I tell him, look, I can help you get some more um, uh, positions as a team physician or as as a doctor for a college or high school So I go about starting to look for high schools, colleges in the Tampa area, teams that, uh, you know, could be uh, willing to hire a a doctor as an orthopedic surgeon as a team physician. And I do that. We get a couple of high schools. We get a Division II college, which is uh, called St. Leo College at the time, just outside of Tampa. They are now St. Louis, uh, Leo University, but at the time it was called St. Leo College. And St. Leo College doesn't have a trainer. So I become the athletic trainer at St. Leo College for both men's and women's uh, sports. Uh, and I decide to do that for one year. In the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, you know, do I want to do baseball? Do I want to do basketball? Because I did basketball, I did baseball at USC. Uh, and I also have this love for hockey and I'm thinking, I want to do professional sports. I don't really want to do the college thing. I want to do professional sports, but what sport am I going to do? 
so I work at the Division II college for one year. And uh, now it's time to decide, okay, what sport am I going to do? So I put in a couple applications around to various different sports. And I meet up with an athletic trainer who was the trainer for the Detroit Vipers. And this was back when the International Hockey League was uh, popular. Uh, And the Detroit Vipers were in the International Hockey League playing out of Pontiac, Michigan at the time. And they were probably the AAA affiliate of the Detroit Red Wings at the time. Uh, And I meet up with this guy and he says, you know, I'm looking for a trainer who's going to help us in training camp and then is going to be assigned to one of our minor league teams, which is in Flint, Michigan. (laughs) And uh, somehow I got that job uh, and I bypassed baseball. I bypassed basketball and decided to take my journey to Flint, Michigan, and uh, go to professional hockey. So uh, not knowing really anything about Flint, Michigan, uh, and uh, decided to take a job there. And uh, at that time in Flint, Michigan, they had no equipment manager and no athletic trainer. So as was popular at the time in minor league hockey, you had one guy do both jobs. So I became the equipment guy and the medical guy uh, with the Flint Generals in uh, ni- that was nineteen ninety five, I believe. And okay, uh, so a guy who has no idea what a skate blade is is now sharpening them. Walk yes. me through. Walk me through that that one, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so to go back a little bit, my journey in hockey uh, was pretty unusual because I'm growing up in Inglewood. Los Angeles, California, not much hockey in the late 60s, early 70s in Los Angeles. This was long before Wayne Gretzky came to L.A. Mm -hmm. Uh, So my friend, uh, who also played Little League Baseball with me, his dad was a big hockey fan and bought us a street hockey set, the old Mm -hmm. Milek orange ball uh, street hockey set. And... Uh, we played every day after school and I was lucky enough that his dad was also a big LA Kings fan and he would take us to the games every so often. Uh, And uh, that kind of just really fueled my excitement for the sport, my love for the sport. Uh, Marcel Dion. Marcel Dion. (laughs) Vashon was my favorite player. (laughs) Uh, but we would play that every day with a first baseman's glove, uh, you know, a tennis ball a lot of times because the my leg ball uh, kind of hurt if you didn't have any pads on. Uh, and uh, his his dad taking us to games, uh, we just really became in love with it. Uh, and back again in those days, there were no L.A. Kings games on TV. You might have been lucky to get five or six games on TV throughout the whole season. Uh, unlike the Dodgers and Lakers who were on all the time. Uh, but we would, we would, my mother had a subscription to that TV guide. This TV guide came out every week and I would rifle through to see if there was a Kings game coming on. Uh, and, uh, never really got to see many Kings games on TV, but was lucky enough that he took us. So my love for hockey uh, started when I was about eight or nine years old playing street hockey. Um, 
So I had never really skated myself until I was about 16. I decided to go down to the ice rink in Culver City, where there was an ice rink where the Kings actually practiced at that time, and uh, just decided to buy myself a pair of skates and learn how to skate. So I had not been on skates until I was 16. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. But love for hockey became uh, pretty strong when I was a kid and then decided to learn how to play, learn how to skate. And then my first job in Flint, Michigan, had never sharpened a skate, had never taken a skate blade off, uh, but uh, somehow figured it out pretty quick, uh, had some help with some other guys. And uh, strangely enough, we won the championship that year in the Colonial Hockey League. Uh, We beat Thunder Bay, Ontario, uh, and uh, we became the champion. So that was a pretty exciting experience, uh, but pretty uh, tough, uh, pretty tough season, uh, just trying to do both jobs. And, uh, you know, now, now being in charge of transporting all the gear, the medical, the equipment, uh, it was tough. But yeah, I think it's one of the, the heaviest uh, pro sports uh, grinds of, of, the, of the four when it comes especially to the equipment side of things. It's a little insane. Yeah, <laughs> unbelievable the amount of stuff and and how we have to lug it around. And sometimes we can't get into locker rooms and we have to put it uh, in a room to store it and then come back and take it out of that room and move it into the locker room. Yeah. It's tough. Um, It's a tough grind, especially for the equipment guys. Uh, We try and help as much as we can. um, But a lot of times it's late nights, early mornings for those equipment guys. And they're, lugging sweaty smelly uh equipment around and hanging it up and uh it's it's a thankless job and one that doesn't get a lot of recognition but these guys are really the backbone of a lot of organizations if it wasn't for these guys a lot of stuff wouldn't get done uh Mm -hmm. and today's player you know back in the minor leagues we had guys that would carry their own equipment to the bus and take it off of the bus and take it into the locker room Guys barely touch their equipment nowadays. Uh, it's all the equipment guys that, uh, you know, lug their stuff around, take it on the plane, off the plane, on the truck, into the room, so on and so forth. So these guys don't get a lot of recognition, but they really are the backbone of the organization. And, uh, you know, they're transporting everything. We bring our own tape. We bring everything pretty much uh, to stock an entire locker room. Uh, and we bring it in trunks and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of stuff that gets transported around. Yeah. They love the medical trunks too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's been a couple of medical trunks that have uh, somehow fallen off of the uh, truck and uh, (laughs) accidentally been dropped (laughs) because they're too heavy. (laughs) Disappeared. (laughs) Yeah. Or yeah, just didn't uh, show up at some point i was yeah. like the uh the heavy teams for the guys who did the opposition dressing rooms and you'd know who <laughs> the heavy teams were and the, yeah. they would be not so happy that so-and-so was coming into town this week because of the number of trunks they carry in bags yeah. and bags else. <laughs> yeah we, we don't like this team because they have the heaviest <laughs> trunks in the league yeah 
or they have the most. That was that was my greatest uh, experience of the game was getting into these box vans and sitting on fold out chairs with <laughs> like eight thousand pounds worth of gear behind you. <laughs> when yeah. somebody hits the brakes in a bad scene, you're going to be squashed like a ant and a, underneath yeah. a shoe. But nobody ever talks about that part of the game. <laughs> How about some of those box trucks that had a little sofa in the back? <laughs> we used to hang out on the sofa. Uh, that's changed now. They actually have larger trucks, and they won't let anyone sit in the back now. Mm. So they have uh, usually those double cabs where mm-hmm. they have another row in the back of the driver's seat, which guys sit. And if you don't fit, you got to take the bus, and then you meet meet the guys at the rink. So they don't allow the chairs or the sofas in the back anymore. <laughs> that's that's a good thing, I think. <laughs> yeah, that was popular for a while. How did you end up in Tampa then? So I'm in Flint, Michigan. We win the championship. I come back to Tampa because that was really my home. I, I didn't really move all of my stuff to Flint. Uh, I wasn't sure how long it was going to be there. Uh, in the minor leagues, you don't really sign like multi-year contracts. It's it's basically a season-to-season deal. Um, I always felt because we won the championship that I could go back there if I had to. But in the offseason, I came back to Florida. And uh, a guy that I knew who was doing the visiting teams for the Lightning, um, Rod Harris, uh, who's still with the Lightning. He's been there for 34 years doing the visiting teams. Uh, he was doing a summer gig with me uh, with roller hockey. We did this roller hockey thing. I don't know if you remember Roller Hockey International called RHI. So it was a summer gig. I went back to work it after Flint, uh, and I was working for the team in Tampa. And the team in Tampa was owned by the Messier family. Mark Messier, his brother Paul, uh, his dad was involved, his sister, the whole family was involved in this pro hockey team in Tampa and uh, met up with some people uh, around the NHL who also had uh, teams in the league. Uh, It was pretty popular. A lot of minor league players, not a lot of NHL players played in it, but it was more for minor league guys who were looking to get into the NHL. And uh, I just happened to be at the right place at the right time in Tampa. They had an athletic trainer who wasn't really a certified athletic trainer. He was an old equipment guy. And he became the athletic trainer. I don't know how. But uh, he was, you know, this happened quite frequently in hockey, too, where an equipment guy or someone who wasn't really a certified medical athletic trainer became the athletic trainer. Uh, and uh, they were looking for someone who was a little more experienced um, to replace this guy. They didn't, uh, be, and this guy wanted to get back into equipment also. Um, so the Tampa Bay Lightning were looking for somebody, and I just happened to be in Tampa at the time working with the Messier family, and I guess my name got passed around, and all of a sudden I get a call from Phil Esposito, who was the general manager at the time, you know, saying, hey, can you come down? We'd like to uh, interview you for the athletic training job. Uh, So that's how that kind of happened. I go from Flint, Michigan, 
to the Tampa Bay Lightning in a matter of, you know, six, nine months or whatever it was. And again, I'm thrown into a situation where I'm totally unprepared for the NHL. Uh, but I'm not going to let them see that. I'm not going to let them uh, know that I'm totally unprepared for this opportunity because it is a huge opportunity for someone like me. Uh, and uh, I am totally unprepared for the NHL. Uh, I'm way too serious. I'm way too, uh, you know, focused on doing everything uh, by the book and, and so regimented. My military experience is coming out way too strong. Uh, and uh, after two years with the Tampa Bay Lightning, they um, find a new ownership group. Um, and that ownership group was the same group that owned the Detroit Vipers in the IHL. They come into Tampa and they bring all of those people from the Detroit Vipers uh, and they let us go. Uh, myself, the equipment guys were let go a year after um, and they bring in all their own people. So mm -hmm. from 97 to 99, I'm with Tampa and it was a, a terrible situation because here I am in my, finally my dream situation and we were a very bad team. Uh, the team was very poorly run. Uh, it was very, uh, very disruptive and distracted. And it really wasn't a great NHL experience. Um, so that ended after two years. And here again, I'm, I'm now in a situation where <laughs> what do I do now? Uh, so uh, at that point, uh, the New Jersey Devils were looking for somebody for their uh, minor league team in the AHL, which was in Albany, New York. Uh, so I go from Tampa, from Flint to Tampa, and now to Albany, which is really a, a whole uh, change of pace in every direction. Uh, but to decide that hockey is, you know, where I want to stay, I really love the the people that are involved in hockey. I think the hockey athlete is the most down to earth, uh, even keeled, um, you know, generally great people, uh, sport as far as athletes go of all the ones that I've worked with. Um, you know, most small town Canadian guys, uh, or smaller town U S guys will just, you know, really good people. So that is the sport I decided I want to stay with. So Albany was, was an easy choice for me to go. So I, I decided to go to Albany and uh, work with the New Jersey Devils for the next five years. It's interesting. I, I wanted to ask you your thoughts because you came in the NHL about the same time I did. And it was, I kind of look at it as a bit of a transition point from, um, I would call the traditionalized elements of the NHL, which probably perpetuated itself through the seventies, eighties and early nineties. And then you sort of with the, some of the uh, changes in, in salary structure and where the money really came into the game, the game sort of changed through the nineties and you saw a little bit more professionalization, but at sort of tail end of the nineties, you're still, you still have a lot of the old guard, the, the Gilmore's, the Messier's, the Gretzky's, all these guys are around. And there's this kind of, you know, there's, 
there's a culture around hockey at that point, but you can also see there's a bit of this tug of war between the culture and also the performance culture that starts to develop. And same thing to your point, like you had the old, old guard trainers who maybe didn't have the accreditations and things. And now teams were required to have ATs who were certified and all, all around that sort of time. So you know, as you saw a change or were a part of that change, what do you think were the good parts of that and the bad parts of that change in your, when you look back on it? Quick break here. We'll be back with our guest in just a moment. We've been lucky at Leave Your Mark since the very beginning almost that Matrix Fitness has come on as our main sponsor and they remain steadfast to this program because they know how it serves the community at large the same way they serve the human performance community as well. And basically, if you need something in the world of human performance, whether it's to build a performance facility or training facility or fitness facility, whether it's a home facility you're trying to build or a hybrid facility out of the garage to work with clients... It doesn't really matter what the actual goal is. They have a product for you. They have the equipment and they have the service capacity to make sure that you're getting what you need when you need it for what you need it for. And that's the key is they are a full service organization. They are worldwide. They are one of the biggest Uh, equipment manufacturers in the world for human performance and they remain dedicated to bringing great products every day to you the consumer so that you can do what it is you need to do which is take care of your clients and or take care of yourself i encourage you to go over to team up with matrix.ca and check out their products today ask them the questions you need answers to and they will do their best to take care of you Thanks again, Matrix, for taking care of LYM. Do you struggle with finding the reason why your client keeps coming back to you with the same injury problem or why your client that you're training is having limitations in their performance? Do you find yourself challenged with how to progress the exercises that you're going to do or regress them or understand what actually is going on with their movement and what may need to be tweaked or changed or cleaned up so that they can function more appropriately and perform better? Do you find it challenging sometimes to work in or with other practitioners and professionals so that you can create a solution for the clients or the team or the organization that you're with? Well, reconditioning is all about providing you with an operating system for navigating those environments and those situations. It is a fundamental process that scripts and brings together the worlds of therapy and performance in uh, a way that no one else is really doing. It brings together applied neurology, the foundation of uh, why we move and how we move, and gives you the tools to make the changes and understand where you can take your tool set and be more tactical with it and get greater intervention Uh, outcomes and better outcomes in general for your athletes and for your clients in general. So this is not just a system for athletes. It's a system for every human being. And we also believe that every human being is some form of athlete. So we need to look at the human being, what it is that the human wants to do and take care of business when it comes to getting them prepared to do what they want to do. So if you're interested in upgrading your professional practice, run 
run over to reconditioninghq.com today and take a look at our offerings. Uh, we have a beautiful course curriculum and program that takes you from point A to point Z or Z if you like Z better than Z and helps you take care of uh, all the people that you need to take care of on a daily basis. A reminder that the doors are open for application to the LYM Life Lab that begins right at the start of May. And this month, we'll be taking applications, sorting out who's going to be a part of this program. We want people who are dedicated to self-reflection and growth and contribution and want to make a change in their world and be the best they can be. I suggest you head over to lymlab.com today. Check out the program on the LYM Life Lab page. If you want to, there are two free downloads there that you can jump on um, just to get you started with instigating change in your world and uh, working on your mindset and other skills that we're going to be dumping into and having a lot of fun with in the program. There's a lot to it. Uh, if you read the fine print, so to speak, on that page, the Leave Your Mark Life Lab page, you'll see some of the different things that you're going to be learning, the things we're going to be doing, and how we're going to operate through this next year. I want to uh, invite anybody who wants to instigate change in their lives and create the best situation for themselves under the guidance of mentorship and community. Jump on it today, uh, head over there and apply, and if you've got any questions, just feel free to PM me. Take care. We're back. Enjoy the podcast. Yeah, I think uh, at my time when I first got into the NHL, it was really very low on the performance side of things. Uh, and I think hockey in general, of all of the four major sports, has always lagged behind the other sports uh, in all of those regards, professionalism, uh, moving into the more performance data-driven analytics kind of, uh, and we see that today, you know, hockey is still behind uh, baseball, football, basketball, as far as the analytics uh, go and how, and how we focus on the sports science side. Although we have a lot, uh, a lot more of the sports science people involved, still the data collection and how we collect it and, you know, we still have people that don't really understand the biomechanics of the skating stride, really, mm. to, to be honest with you, uh, because all of those other sports are, are so ingrained and ground-based, and a lot of the research is focused on ground-based track and field, um, you know, sprinting and that kind of thing. Soccer is a big, big sport, science sport. Uh, not a lot of that is filtered filtered down into the hockey biomechanics skating kind of world as much as we would like yet. So mm -hmm. hockey has always kind of been behind in, in those regards. Um, but I think in my opinion, it was really good that the NHL decided uh, back in the early mid nineties that everyone who was working in the medical field had to be certified and had to be certified as an athletic trainer, which means you went through a period of schooling, you got a degree, you took a certification test, and you kind of knew how to uh, evaluate, treat, prevent, uh, and handle uh, injuries because the sport is and was getting 
quicker, faster, uh, and the injury were becoming uh, more on the concussion side. As you know, the lacerations are uh, important. So you needed someone who knew what they were doing to handle those things. But, so I think that's been good. Uh, I think, again, hockey lagged behind some of the other sports, and hockey still allowed some of the um, teams to have uncertified people uh, because there wasn't at the time this reciprocity between Canada and the U.S. And hockey always gets stuck, even in this pandemic situation, hockey always gets stuck in this Canada-U.S. divide where we have rules and regulations in Canada, we have rules and regulations in the U.S., and there's no reciprocity between the two. Mm. Uh, and that still perpetuated itself for quite a while with Canada and the U.S. Uh, we had Canadian trainers who were certified in Canada but weren't certified in the U.S. working for U.S. teams. And a lot of the guys who were certified in the U.S. are wondering, well, how come I'm not getting that job? Why are they bringing this guy from Canada down to take this job where I'm certified in the U.S.? They're not. I should be. So um, there was that whole situation. But I think that's been pretty much remedied now, and it's been remedied for several years. But there was always that reciprocity between Canada and the U.S., uh, problem. But I think it's pretty much streamlined now that every head athletic trainer, every assistant athletic trainer is certified now, uh, either by the Canadian Athletic Trainers Association or by the National Athletic Trainers Association in the U.S. And they do have reciprocity. They have finally agreed uh, to uh, accept each other's certifications, basically. Well, you know, it's because Canadians invented hockey. Come on now. <laughs> that is true that is their sport they want to take full credit for that for sure <laughs> so you work for the devils for a few years then you end up with the panthers and um 08 you kind of leave the league why why do you kind of why do you take the sabbatical and do some other things and then come back yeah in 2000 so i'm with the panthers so we, we also have to put a little bit of context as there's several different work stoppages strikes, lockouts. I don't know. Whoever you talk to has a different name for it. But there were several of these different lockouts while I'm working in the NHL. Mm. And one of them happened to be in 2005, I believe. Four, yeah. 2004, 2005. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was a, a long time. And I'm working for the Devils at the time. The Devils let pretty much everybody go. They kept us on for a while but the lockout went on for longer than anybody expected. Uh, so they let us go. Uh, and then in 2005, a lot of the guys who were trainers didn't return uh, to their jobs. So there are several teams that are looking for trainers and the Florida Panthers were one of them. And I happened to get the head job with the Florida Panthers uh, in 2005. And again, it was a situation where, Management was not very good. Ownership was not very good. Uh, people that have money don't necessarily make good owners. <laughs> and I think people that have money think that because they have money, they know what they're doing. 
Uh, and yes, some people do. But when it comes to professional sports, it's, it's not like running a 7-Eleven. It's a completely different uh, ball game. And I think a lot of people who have money don't understand that. And, uh, you know, the ownership was bad. Uh, there was a lot of uh, internal problems with the GM, the coach. The GM got fired. The coach took over the GM and coaching. Uh, and players, uh, you know, every year there was a whole different roster. Anyways, it was a difficult time. Uh, I was there for three years. Uh, and in that time, it was, a, it was a good time, too, because we had three guys that I finally got my first experience in what high performance really was. This was Gary Roberts. This was Joe Neuendijk and Ed Belfour. We had all three of those guys who were 40 and over at the time playing for us at one time. And those three guys and their experiences working with the people that they worked with, uh, as far as the Mark Lindsay's, uh, Andy O'Brien's, um, and those people uh, really opened my eyes more to the high performance side. Um, and when those guys left uh, in 2008, I was wondering, okay, do I want to stay in Florida? What do I want to do now? The team was still run very poorly. Uh, we weren't winning. It wasn't a good atmosphere. And Ed Belfour, who had a really good season in 2000. And eight, I believe, or 2007, 2008 season, had a really good season with the Florida Panthers. Uh, they decided not to re-sign him, and he signed with a team in Sweden. And it was a second division team in Sweden, uh, in Lexan. And Lexan's pretty popular as a uh, really rabid fan base uh, in Lexan. They held the World Junior Championships. Uh, in that uh, arena. Uh, so really big fan base. And he decided to sign there and asked me if I wanted to go with him. Uh, and I'm thinking, you know, do I want to stay in the NHL in a lousy situation, leave the NHL and try and get something else or take this sure thing and go to Sweden for a while. So I decided to go with Eddie Belfort to Sweden and, uh, Really, really had a great experience uh, with that. Uh, worked pretty much exclusively, exclusively with Eddie on his soft tissue and uh, body stuff. But then as I was there, started working on everybody with the team uh, and really enjoyed my time there. Uh, we played in the playoffs. And if you know anything about the European leagues, the second division plays a playoff and the top couple of teams that win in those playoffs get moved up to the first division. Oh, so and they have relegation like this? They have relegation. League. Okay. Yeah. So Eddie Belfort goes there pretty much to try and get this team back to the top division. Uh, and we make the playoffs. We uh, fall in the playoffs and don't get to the top division so eddie belfort leaves and now i'm in another situation where okay now what am i gonna do i'm i'm leaving sweden and i'm coming back to the u.s with with nothing so uh, that's when i have to go back to work and work at the orthopedic clinic as kind of an athletic trainer 
uh, going out to schools and also working in the doctor's office as kind of a uh, medical assistant. You know, I'm doing casting, I'm doing uh, the orthopedic bracing stuff. Uh, so working in the office pretty much and doing some outreach stuff, but mostly in the office, uh, working with the orthopedic surgeons there and do that for a while. And then uh, again, I'm, I'm questioning myself, what should I be doing? You know, I always have this feeling like my race has never been run yet. <laughs> so I'm constantly evaluating what am I doing? What should I be doing? And uh, working in this orthopedic clinic for about a year, year and a half, um, Andy O'Brien gives me a call. Uh, and Andy O'Brien, I don't know who is listening to the podcast, but he's pretty widely well-known in the um, strength and conditioning world as one of the top hockey strength and conditioning uh, people. Uh, he's worked with Sidney Crosby and uh, quite a few other uh, professional hockey players. He gives me a call, says he's working at this clinic or school. Actually, it's a sports school in Calgary uh, called the Edge School and asks if I want to come out there for a while and, uh, you know, in the summertime, a lot of guys go back to Calgary and work out and he works them out. And there's a lot of connections there. Maybe you could get back into the NHL kind of doing this uh, for a period of time. So I go to Calgary and work with him for a while. And uh, then that kind of ends also as he moves on and he's doing other things. Uh, and then I decide you know what, maybe I'll, I'll follow in the footsteps of some of the chiropractors that have uh, influenced me. Uh, and a lot of the chiropractors, Mark Lindsay, for example, uh, is doing a lot of work privately with NHL guys, um, goes to see them, they come to see him. Uh, and I say, maybe I'll do that. I'll go to chiropractic school and become a chiropractor. And after four years, I can kind of open my own practice and with all my hockey connections can get involved with hockey guys, similar to what Lindsay did. But a slight twist, I can kind of do that nutrition stuff that I'm really interested in and that I've been uh, doing for a while. Um, so I decided to go back to chiropractic school. Uh, and that was 2011, 2012. Um, and in the meantime, in the summer times, I've been doing some of the um, clinics like Andy O'Brien was doing some professional hockey clinics in the summertime with a group of guys who would go to Vail, Colorado for, you know, two, three weeks, work out prior to the season, um, do strength training, go on the ice, do a bunch of stuff, uh, for, uh, the time right before training camp started. And Andy invited me out to several of those. So I also hooked up with some of the pro pro guys that way uh, and thought that would be a pretty good base. I'd go to chiropractic school. I'd have these guys. I could follow in Mark Lindsay's footsteps and do some of that. So I got accepted to chiropractic school uh, and I'm there in orientation and the Pittsburgh Penguins call. And they said, we'd like you to submit a resume. And I'm guessing Sid uh, passed my name to them because they were looking for somebody at the time. And he passed my name, so I sent a resume. And uh, strangely enough, there was a lockout going at the time. Uh, and they said, well, we don't know when we're going to hire somebody because the lockout's going on. Uh, 
and I'm going to go to chiropractic school. It's going to start in January, and uh, I'm already signed up. So my first week there, the Pittsburgh Penguins call, and uh, they want to hire me uh, because the lockout is over. We're going to go back to uh, NHL hockey January uh, 5th or something. Uh, so I'm in Los Angeles at chiropractic school. I tell them I'm leaving. I decide to take the opportunity in uh, Pittsburgh, and that's in 2012 when the lockout in January ends. And I've been here ever since. So wow. I'm I'm confident that I've finally found uh, <laughs> what my calling uh, is uh, with the Penguins. And uh, you know, my job here has evolved over the past ten years. Um, but uh, I think I'm I'm comfortable where I am right now and. I'm also at the age where, uh, you know, it's probably time to stop uh, thinking about what else I could do and, and be happy and content with what I am doing, mm-hmm. which, uh, which is what, I, what I'm doing right now. So, yeah, I'm cool. thankful for, yeah, thankful for that opportunity, but I could have been a chiropractor. <laughs> <laughs> I could have been a contender. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So your, your birthday is August 9th, you said? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so I always read from my book, The Day You Were Born. So I'll tell you what your purpose is and stuff. You can take it for what it is. You're a Leo 9, which means uh, your purpose is to separate from the secure and risk and risk yourself in the unknown, to use your strong personal perspective, to give others the courage to follow their own passion and their own ideas. The greatest pleasure in life is doing what people say you cannot do. Walter Bagot. And no one knows this better than the Leo 9. They do the impossible all the time. However, this does take its toll. This combination requires that in spite of the strong individuals around them, they do what they know is right for them. Freedom for the Leo 9 must come from inner strength and not from exercising force outside. When they are sure of themselves and committed to a goal, opposite opposition dissolves. When they hesitate, others sense their insecurity and opposition grows. Becoming their own person is not easy, but when it's achieved, no one questions their authority. Nice. Sounds like you might finally be there, my friend. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. That's cool. Well, um, two things to kind of bring this to a, a head. Uh, you mentioned Sid, you mentioned Andy, you mentioned uh, the concussion stuff and all this stuff. I want to know, obviously, I don't want to talk about the actual situation, but what what did you learn and how do you look at, you mentioned concussions before, what, by having somebody of that ilk uh, in the league have the trouble that he had around that, what did it t- teach you about how you were going to look at that? type of injury moving forward in your career. Um, I think it did just, you learn other things about the science of it and stuff that, that maybe weren't clear to you prior to all that happening? Well, I think as with any injury, there's a lot of stuff going on with concussions. It's not just about the contact or the, the, uh, the actual on ice or off ice injury. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on both at the physiological level, the psychological level, uh, how the physiology, the nutrition uh, affects the psychology uh, and how all of that is affected by um, the brain and how, how we re-educate uh, that. So it really took me into a world, really into a deep dive into how all of these things affect what goes on post 
concussion. It's not just about that hit to the head, but there are so many other involvements uh, and so many other people that can help you um, assess and help that athlete get back to uh, the playing field. Mm. Uh, It is not a life sentence. I think we are still trying to discover if this whole CTE is uh, legitimate and what level of legitimacy it does have. Uh, As you know, there are a lot of athletes that have had concussions uh, that don't have the severe symptoms that uh, Junior Seau had. Uh, So I don't know if everybody who has a concussion has this as their fate. I would hope not. Uh, And I would think that early intervention, early treatment, early acknowledgement of all of the other factors that go on besides the actual hit to the head, uh, I think can make a huge difference. And I think that's what we try and focus on is early identification, early treatment, both, uh, you know, the hands-on manual muscle treatment, as well as the nutritional, as well as the psychological uh, treatments are all important. It's not just one thing. Uh, and each guy handles it. Each guy is affected by it differently. Cool. Um, so you sent me some great pictures of you hoisting the cup with with a Mac Daddy beard going on. <laughs> you can grow a solid beard. Dude. Um, you know, that changes. That, that experience, there are many, including myself, who've worked in the league for a number of years who don't get to do that. And it's, uh, but how did it change you uh, achieving that? Wow. Um, I think for me, it changed me into legitimizing myself. Um, Although I always know I am not responsible for that victory, I do have a piece in it. uh, And I always keep that in the back of my mind. You are only responsible to a degree. You are not solely responsible for it. Uh, And I think it takes a great team effort. I think it takes a lot of communication, but it changes you into knowing that you are a legitimate uh, person in this field. Um, And I don't want to say that people who don't win are not legitimate. Um, But for me personally, it just helps legitimize for myself that uh, I was a real uh, factor in this whole world of sports science, sports performance, treatment, hockey, you know, all of those things. Mm. Uh, so I think that's how it changed me. Uh, I hope it didn't change me as, uh, you know, a cocky, uh, person who doesn't remember where I came from Mm. because I do remember that I am a high school dropout. Um, and to know that and to know that you can keep going, um, and still succeed and be successful uh, and have people that, uh, you know, rely on you and uh, need you, I think uh, is important. Cool. So That's a great, way, great way to finish. Thank you, sir, for taking the time. It's been uh, outstanding to get to know you a little bit better. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Hopefully uh, there'll be more times where we could converse and exchange ideas and viewpoints. And, you know, I'm always looking to learn. So Awesome. 
Are you going to be down at the P hat scaff thing? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Potenza's got uh, myself and my wife doing a pre-con on okay, reconditioning. Great. So maybe we can nice. connect down there, sir. Yeah, let's do it. All right, buddy. Take care of yourself and thanks, thanks for your time. Scott. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today. And we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pay and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.